Hey everyone, Josh here. Just a quick reminder, this is the second part of a conversation that Robert had with Dr. Jeff Rankin from North Greenville about how to study the Bible. If you have not checked out part one, please do so on our Anchor page or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That being said, we hope you enjoy the end of this conversation. Um, so as our people are doing this, just really quickly before we jump kind of into our last topic, are there any like uh, resources that you would recommend to the to the average reader? One of the things I always recommend is a good study Bible. Oh yeah, that's in, that's uh, invaluable when you're studying the text. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think I would say this: we have such an incredible wealth of resources. Indeed. And I would just look back over the the, the generations hmm. of the Christian Church and say. We have more resources at our fingertips than at any point in the history of Christianity. And I would just ask all of us, including myself, this question. Why are we not using them? Absolutely. And so there are lots of resources. I would point to maybe a couple quickly. Sure. Uh, There's a good book, actually two books, but the one I want to start with is a book by uh, Fee and Stewart. Okay. uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And we'll link Um, these in our show notes as well for our folks. And this one is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Book by book, okay. I was thinking you were going to recommend a different one. That's great. Right, and I am going to recommend that one second. Okay, okay. But the first one is actually taking each book of the Bible and giving a quick overview of the book and allowing you to sort of begin at least to get some of that historical and cultural context that can make you more sensitive to reading the text and making the observations that lead to interpretation and application. So how to read the Bible book Book by by book. book. Okay. Uh, their more well-known text is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Yes, which on is, my shelf. You want to borrow it? There, <laughs> which is a hermeneutics textbook. Absolutely. And much of what we've talked about will be repeated in that book. Absolutely. Uh, so I would recommend both of those books yeah. uh, as a good method to uh, adopt. But book by book, because as you're reading through Numbers, you know there's a, there's a chapter on Numbers. And sure. it gives you a chance to really think through that book, yeah. uh, not only in and of itself, but actually how it connects to the larger narratives around it. Sure. Uh, another, uh, I think this is indispensable, is a Bible background commentary. Okay. Uh, one of the, the best ones uh, is edited by John Walton in the Old Testament. Okay. IVP or InterVarsity Press. I think I have that one as well. Uh, Bible background commentary. Mm-hmm. And basically this one is set up so that as you go through each book, uh, there are comments made on individual passages that include some of the more uh, difficult text of historical and cultural distance. And in that comment on a particular chapter and verse or verses, uh, the authors there will then help you see some important information that you can now take advantage of to help you read that through a better lens uh, that is closer in historical distance and cultural context to the original. Uh, And then finally, it's always important to have a good commentary series. And again, there are just, I mean, there are commentary series coming out all the time. Yeah. But one that has recently been revised and I find to be perhaps the best one for younger pastors that are just beginning the work or even church members who want to study the Bible at a greater depth. Sure. It's called the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Yes. And it's actually set up in volumes, so you'll have several books of the Old Testament in one single volume, which of yeah. course means it's a little bit shorter than a book-level commentary. Yeah. Uh, but it's accessible. 
and and very helpful. And the most recent update, uh, some of the, the the best scholars of our time now have been asked to come in and revise some of these books nice. uh, that have been done in the past. So uh, the only problem with it, of course, is to get the whole set is rather expensive. Rather I think expensive. you're looking at maybe three to four hundred dollars. Sure, uh, for the whole Old Testament. But piecemeal as the yeah. church is working through books of the Bible, absolutely. Yeah, three or three or four hundred maybe for the New Testament set. Yeah, uh, but ultimately, if you really want to get into the text. There's nothing as helpful as a good commentary, uh, and this is at a really good level, and it's really geared to the idea uh, of understanding how, how to observe the text, how to interpret it, how to apply it That's great. Uh, at that level. And so uh, that would be three really good, really four sort of, but really good resources. That's great. Well, so kind of to, to wrap things up, one of the things I wanted to talk about, we, we, we've kind of uh, we've built out a, a general play that you can run on any text of Scripture, yeah. right? Uh, observation, interpretation, application. But as we as has kind of like been the foundation of our conversation, right? There are difficult passages in sure. the Bible, and so are there some uh, are there some things that we need to keep in mind when we get to? I recommend I, I mentioned a Numbers five, right? In this sure. odd test for adultery that yeah. we had to work through um, on Sunday morning. Are there some uh, some things that we should keep in mind when we come to obscure or even controversial texts? Yeah, I think let's just take Numbers first, okay? Since that's so, sort of a main context for our discussion. Sure. I think what we have to realize, first of all, at the literary level, that Numbers is not a book unto itself. Absolutely. Now, that's a little odd because when I open my Bible, I see the book of Numbers and it's got its own heading and it it appears to be set off from the others. Hmm. But in some ways, that's an artificial setting off of the book. Uh, The reality is that all five books of what we call the Pentateuch or what the Jews call the Torah are really books that hang together. Yep. And it's interesting, if you if you go to the book of Numbers, for example, uh, really any of the books of the Pentateuch, except for Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy does stand alone a little bit in the collection of those five books. Uh, but if you go to the books, you'll actually find that the way the books begin is interesting. And unfortunately, you don't see it in English translations. Okay. But in Hebrew, what you're going to find is that, for example, the book of Exodus starts with the letter Vav tied to a verb, and that letter Vav stands for a conjunction, what we call a coordinating conjunction. And so Exodus, we might say in English, starts with the word and. Okay. Leviticus starts with the word and. Numbers starts with the word and. All right. Okay, so why is that important? Because it reminds us this is not a whole new book, Hmm. but it's a continuation of what's gone before. Hmm. And the author didn't do that accidentally. We call it in Hebrew the Vav consecutive, which means that it is presenting consecutive events. Okay, And so in some ways, not completely, but in some ways, the Pentateuch is really like one book. Now, Deuteronomy doesn't have the Vav. It does have a break, and that's because Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' final words to the people Okay. as he's turning over leadership to Joshua and preparing them to move into the land of promise. Uh, but the other books all begin with a Vav consecutive, and that reminds us that they're tied together. Okay. So when I read Numbers, I cannot read it apart from the other books that precede it Okay. because it's a part of this larger. And you mentioned earlier the idea yeah. of the genre of narrative sure. and the genre of law. Yep. But here's the thing. When you're dealing with the hard passages like Numbers 5, we've got to remember that law 
that test for adultery is not standing out on its own apart from the rest of the story. Sure. But it's actually been integrated into the narrative. And hmm. so because it's integrated into the narrative, the first thing I need to do is step back to the larger picture mm-hmm. and sort of look at what's going on here. Yeah. Because I'm dealing with the reality that God, and this is something I'm afraid we have not understood fully. We typically talk about the Pentateuch as the law. Sure. And when we call it the law, we're following in a very good tradition of Christian tradition. But the problem is, unfortunately, that law for us carries a connotation of here are the things that you do and here are the things that you do not do. Rules. And we begin to get kind of consumed or obsessed with this idea of religion and the things that I have to do and the things I'm not supposed to do. And that's not really what God was communicating to Israel. Sure. Because the, the word in Hebrew is Torah. Uh-huh. And Torah means the instructions. Okay. And so we think law, okay? Do and don't. Yep. And even today, Jews understand it's not do and don't as much as it is. These are the instructions that God has given you so that you may live in a way that honors him, that you may accomplish his will. And ultimately, that you may bring the blessing that God intended. Hmm. Because it's obedience to God's instructions that brings the blessing. Yeah, we've oversimplified it. So anytime we look at laws in the Pentateuch, we need to remind ourselves that these are God's instructions to Israel. So that they could have the blessing he wanted for them. And he gives them very explicit instructions, sometimes about things we don't even understand fully, why it would even be necessary, or the method that he may use in those instructions. But the point is that when we obey the instructions, then the blessing is that much closer to us. Sure. So that's the first thing I'd say about numbers. We've got to read it in the larger context of the larger narrative uh, which, of course, is about God's instructions to Israel. Absolutely. So that they can, by the way, so that they can be who God called them to be. Now, I don't have time to flesh this out fully, but I would point you back to Exodus chapter 19. Okay. When they first arrive at Mount Sinai after the Exodus experience and their first movement in the wilderness on their way to the mountain. And you'll find there that God says to Moses, I want you to go to the people and I want you to tell them this. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians how I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. Now, if you will hear my voice and keep my commandments, which essentially would be better translated in English, if you will obey me, then you will be my own special people. Hmm. You will be, and here's the key, verse 6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hmm. And therein we find the purpose for Israel. God has made Israel a priestly nation. In other words, he has chosen them to be a mediator between himself and all the other nations of the world that are separated from God. Sure. But to do that, they have to be like God. Hmm. And so he says in Leviticus 19, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, they're going to be a holy nation. So why did he give them the instructions that he did? So that they could, in fact, be holy. Sure. So that they could, in fact, live out their purpose. Yeah. Well, we miss that part of the narrative, and so then the laws look disconnected, but they're really not. They're all a part of the bigger picture of how God can work in Israel to bless them, but also through them to bless the other nations as they live out the holy character of God 
in front of the world, or as many like to say nowadays, the watching world, right? Sure, absolutely. And so there it is. So that's got to be the first starting point. I've got to okay. look at this this context of the, the what we sometimes call the meta narrative, sure, uh, the Pentateuch. But it even goes beyond that through the Old Testament. It's not that. isolated it's unto not. itself. And yeah. really, the New Testament is an extension of the meta narrative. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so we're looking yeah. at really the whole Bible. Uh, I guess I would say one other thing, real quick, before sure. we maybe kind of tie this thing up. A yeah, little yeah. Bit. yeah. Uh, and I know you wanted to ask me a little bit about, you know, Old Testament, New Testament relationship. I think I can, I can sure. deal with that fairly quickly. Sure. But let me also just kind of give you a principle that that, uh, that I've been talking about a lot of my sermons lately, uh, because I think it really is an important principle that we've missed. The gospel. Okay. Ultimately, what does that mean? Well, it means the good news, right? Yep. Now, I know this doesn't set well with us, but here's the reality. You can't have good news mm-hmm. unless you have the bad news first. Sure. Okay. Now, our world is rebelling against the bad news. Yeah. I don't want you to tell me that I'm a sinner. I I don't want you to say that to me because now I feel like I've been canceled. Uh, Now I feel like my identity has been devalued. There are lots of assumptions that go along with that way of thinking. Sure, absolutely. Okay. But the biggest one is that who I am inside, in my mind, is really the true me. And so I'll just, I'll give a relevant, unfortunately, a very confusing example for people that we ought to love and have compassion for. Absolutely. But there are people who would say to me, I know my body is saying that I'm a woman. Sure. But inside the real me is a man. Yep. Or vice versa. Okay. Now, what I want to say to that person is, first of all, God loves you. Absolutely. And he's made you in his image. And listen, to quote the four spiritual laws, which was a great tool of evangelism for many years, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. All right? But you can't get to the good news until you start with the bad news. Sure. And so here's kind of what the gospel has become in in the hands of some, I think, perhaps even well-intentioned preachers. Sure. Who want to encourage people and help them. It's become God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And what he wants for you is for you to be happy. And so if you'll come to him, he'll set you free so that you can do what you want. Hmm. Now, that is a false gospel, Robert. Absolutely. <laughs> okay? But here's the true gospel. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And what he wants for you is to be holy. And so if you come to him, he'll actually set you free to obey him and find the blessing. Absolutely. Now, the problem is that you can't get to that good news message until you acknowledge there's a problem. So here's the problem. I feel like a man, but I'm really a woman. That's a problem. If I don't address that, and we speak about that in real terms, and say that is not truth, even though it may be a real feeling for you, it's not truth. And so why, why do I feel this way? Why do I have this confusion with my physical body and the way I feel inside? And the answer is because you live in a fallen world. And by your own choices, you've actually disobeyed God and sinned against him. And until you acknowledge that bad news, I can't come in and say, but there's an answer. 
Jesus died for your sins. You see how this works. If I don't acknowledge I have any sins, then why do I need Jesus? And why is the message of the cross good news to me? Well, actually, it's not not just good news. It's no news. It makes no connection to me. So the principle we've got to stress is you've got to have the bad news before you can have the good news. All right, let's take that to Israel. God had a good plan for Israel. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. How well did they cooperate with God in that plan? Well, that land of milk and honey, they pretty much said, no, thank you. Okay. So, <laughs> so basically, here's the thing. They weren't any different than us. No. They didn't want to know the bad news that God had a plan and they weren't keeping it. And so they started looking around to all the other nations and they said, well, look, they've got ways of dealing with this. Let's just do it their way. And maybe we can avoid this whole bad news thing. Sure. You know, but the reality is, what does the Old Testament tell us? Well, it tells us the good news. God made everything good for a good purpose. But then the bad news, sin entered the picture. And from that point on, humans sinned in such degree that they pretty much destroyed everything that God intended to be good. Yeah. And Israel ends up in chaos in the book of Judges, by the way, eventually. Yep. Okay. So, but, but here's the thing. How can the good news be good until you've got the bad news? Sure. And so without the Old Testament, indeed, we don't have the full bad news that pushes us toward the good news. We, we don't understand why Christ had to come and die, how that works out in the larger picture. So that's why we've got to have the bad news first yeah. and then the good news. Yeah. And I would really stress that in really kind of looking at uh, this issue uh, of dealing with the difficult text. They're, they're giving us the bad news so we can be ready to hear the good news. Sure. So, so one of the things that I wanted to, wanted to talk about, I know that, I have, uh, that I've struggled with as we've, been, as we've been working through numbers, is not wanting to, not wanting to go to Jesus too quickly, yeah. right? To let the Old Testament have its say. Um, you know, it is inspired. It is authoritative. Right? Sure. There's, there's truth in it for me. Not that, uh, not that it's not ultimately pointing us to Jesus. It is. Sure. The Bible is a is a unified story, right? Uh, but there's truth there that is um, uh, that is separate. I guess you could say from what we might call the gospel. Sure, gospel proper. So, what uh, how, what kind of counsel would you give us on that? Like, as we're like seeking not to find Jesus under every rock. I think what I've I've always tried to stress to my classes, yeah, is that we've got to start first of all with the original author who is writing to an original intended audience. Okay. And we've got to glean from that setting everything that God intended to reveal. Okay. So point being, Moses was writing for Israel's benefit. Not necessarily the Israel of his own time, but the future Israel that would continue the plan of God. And so as he was writing with that future Israel in mind, and you can see this very clearly in Deuteronomy as he's speaking to the second generation in preparation for their entrance to the land, he's telling them things that they have to know and understand so that they can follow the plan that God has for them and know who God is and the way he's revealed himself to them. Okay. Now, here's the hard part. I know a lot more than Israel knew. There it is. Yep. Okay. But I have always encouraged my students, let's start with the original author, his original intended audience, his original message and purpose, and what God was revealing. And I would bring this principle into play as well. You know, in some ways, God gives us in the Old Testament and really in the New Testament, he gives us 
the things we need to know at the time we need to know them. Sure. So in one sense, the, the revelation is progressive in that God reveals to Israel what they need to know on a need-to-know basis. They had everything they needed to know in Numbers to trust him and follow his commands. Absolutely. Yep. We've got to kind of take it from that angle. Okay. They, at that time, needed to know some specific things to be who God called them to be sure. and to do what God called them to do. And their author, in this case Moses, is revealing those things to them. And so I want to do as much as I can. I can't really do it, but I want to do as much as I can this sort of this sort of transposition, if you will. I want to go back in time. Sure. And I want to become an ancient Israelite as much as possible. Yep. So that I can hear the words of Moses in Numbers the way that he intended that original audience to hear it. Now, that's only a first point though. Okay. Because and here's why I think this is important. If we jump to Jesus immediately, what we're basically saying is that God didn't reveal to Israel anything that was ultimately important. Yeah. Yeah. Because now Jesus has come, none of that matters anymore. But I'm saying, wait a minute. If what I just said a moment ago is true, if there's bad news before we can have good news, then there's got to be something in the Old Testament that prepared us for the message of Jesus. And if we're going to fully understand the message of Jesus, we have to take note of what was intended from the start. Sure. So I've always encouraged my students, let's take what we know about Jesus and just set it off to the side for a moment. In no way am I diminishing its value. In no way am I saying it's not ultimately the main point of everything. Yeah. I'm just saying, could we set it off to the side for a moment and let's try to think like Israelites for a moment under the inspiration of uh, and guidance of the Spirit of God. And let's see if we can discern what message he had to start with that maybe contributed to the bad news that prepares me for the good news. Sure. All right. Now, I'll give you one that's not necessarily inherent to numbers, although I think it always is. Sure. Uh, in the nature of God. Okay. But let's go back to Genesis for a second. There's an echo in Genesis 1 of a doctrine that we call the Trinity. Okay. All right. So when I'm reading the very first verses of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness was the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Okay. Okay. Now, if I read from a Christian perspective immediately, probably the first thing I'm going to think about is John 1. Okay. In the beginning, okay, in the beginning was the Word, and God said, well, there's the Word of God, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God, and he goes, John goes on to say, and he made everything, right? Okay. Well, wait a minute. I'm reading Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. That's That's Elohim. That's right. And the Ruach, the Spirit Spirit of God was there. Yep. And God said, oh, that's the Word of God. Jesus is there. There's the Trinity. (laughs) Right there in Genesis 1. Yep. Now, I'm making a little joke, okay? Sure. I do believe the Trinity is present in creation. But how we got there was not exactly... But here's the problem. (laughs) If I jump to the Trinity right there, here's what I'm saying. I don't mean to say it, but it's really what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Let me ask you this question. Could the original audience have understood the doctrine of the Trinity? Not in the way that you and I understand it. They couldn't have. I'll no tell way. you why. Because God spent all of the Old Testament teaching them there was only one God. Yeah. They were very familiar with the idea of polytheism. It was all around them. Yeah. 
And so God has to get them in the right place to start with, which is there's only one true God. Yeah. All right? Now, anything that takes us to a plurality concept, I know the Trinity is not three gods, and I'm not suggesting that. Sure. But I'm saying for a, for a group of people that live in a polytheistic world, it's probably a little much to expect out of them the nuances of the Trinity where we have one God in three persons. But because the Trinity is in fact true, would we expect to see echoes of the Trinity? Absolutely. Okay, so here's all I'm saying. Don't jump into the echo right off the bat. Try to read it from the perspective of Israel. Yeah. Who would not have understood the idea of one God and three persons. Who would, by the way, there's plural uh, sure. wording in Genesis 1. Yeah. Let us, us absolutely. make man in our image. God's building shelf space yeah. for Trinity that's going to come later. There's no doubt that, that there's, yeah. an, there's an echo of the Trinity there. There's yeah. an allusion to the Trinity there. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that they couldn't have understood it the way we do. And if we jump immediately to that, then we're disregarding sort of the progressive revelation that God yeah. is making to them that kind of helps them get to the point where we understand the full doctrine of the Trinity, yeah. which, by the way, I think would involve knowing the Father yeah. and the Spirit and the Son yeah. or the Word. Yeah, and robs us of this really rich truth that, that we've got here in And I believe that, and text. I found it to be true in my own study of Scripture, yeah. that the more I understand the original author's intent to his original audience before everything I know about Jesus, the better when I do come to Jesus and see the echoes and illusions and do begin to fill out all that he has said about himself it's more beautiful. and what the gospel authors have said about him and what the writers of the epistles have said, not to mention, which we all would have loved to have heard, his dissertation sure. on the Emmaus Road yeah. where he shows them how everything Things in the Scripture been, pointed to him. Man, to have been a fly, right? <laughs> I would love to hear that. Yeah. Okay. But he also assumed in giving them that dissertation that they already knew the first part. Sure. And if they hadn't known the first part, would then his dissertation have made an impact on them? Hmm. Hmm. Not in the same way. Yeah. So I just want to be that person who can hear it the way that they heard it on the Emmaus Road. And not get in such a hurry. Yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Rangan, it has been, uh, man, it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you about uh, the Old Testament, and uh, uh, we're grateful that you would come on the show and, uh, and encourage and, uh, I think, challenge our people. I think our people are going to be really helped uh, by some of the, the things well, you've offered. Praise God, Robert. I'm thankful. You know, it's, uh, it's something that I've felt a call to, and I'm, I'm, I'm always yeah. blessed. Uh, God wants blessing for us, and he blesses us in the ways that he created us and the purposes for which he created yeah. us. So, you know, I get pretty excited when I have a chance to talk about Absolutely, it. man. And uh, that's because I'm fulfilling my purpose, and God yeah. is blessing me as a result. So I'd just say to you hearers out there today, uh, I may not know you personally yet. Maybe I'll get a chance to meet you, but uh, keep this in mind. God has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> there it is. He wants to bless you. And what that involves is you becoming holy just as he has, he is so that you can actually fulfill his purpose for you. Yeah. And that, and this is the amazing thought, you can be free to obey him. Indeed, indeed. How about this? Let's just close with this thought. Paul often calls himself a slave of Christ. He does. That's interesting, isn't it? He does. Here's what he, here's what he understood. Same thing, by the way, that the author of Exodus, Moses, understood. When they left Egypt, 
they weren't being set free as in they had no ongoing relationship with the king. They weren't free to do whatever they wanted, to they, be whoever they were. They just switched slave masters. They just moved from one master to another. Yeah. And by the way, compared to Pharaoh, God was the best master ever. Yeah. Which is why Paul says in the New Testament to slaves, obey your masters. Yeah. Yeah. Don't seek to be released into some kind of arbitrary, nebulous freedom yeah. that we hear so much about in our world. Because listen, true freedom is found in doing the will of God. Or Jesus can say, come to me, right? My burden is easy, right? That's right. Yeah. And I just want to be able to I can't ever say it. I'll never be able to say it on this side of eternity. But wouldn't it be great to say what Jesus said? I always do what pleases the Father. Man, man. So I just challenge you all as listeners and hearers today. Seek to always do what pleases the Father. Hmm. And you'll find the blessing God has for you in it. And you'll actually find that true freedom comes in obedience to our great God and Savior. Well, we'll let that be the final word. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today on Off Script. We are, uh, we're grateful uh, that you would give us your time. We, we pray, we hope that you were encouraged and challenged and, and as always, ultimately uh, pointed to the gospel and Christ and the great salvation that he offers us. Uh, salvation that the foundation of which was laid way, way back. In the Old Testament. It's been a lot of fun today, Dr. Ring. Thanks so much. Thank you, Robert.